Well, it's good to see you. You know, I don't know if you, I don't know how long you've, you've been with us, but uh, this particular, actually this next weekend, this coming weekend, would be our, the usual weekend that we would do our church weekend away. And so every year we kind of pause whatever series we're in for this Sunday and next Sunday, anticipating that we'll be out in Castle Daily together. But obviously we're not doing that this year. We'll pick it up next year. Uh, so we're, we're not in Romans today or next week, and you know, we've kind of decided because, you know, because COVID uh, and the lockdown and the restrictions, it, it kind of took us out of this habit of being a family together. Uh, it, it kind of moved us into this phase where we maybe got comfortable even being in isolation uh, and being isolated from one another. And so we, we've just kind of decided that in these off weeks, we're going to really hit this subject of community and the subject of family pretty hard because we, you know, just like if you sit around for, uh, for six months, your muscles get weak and, and maybe our community muscles have gotten weak over the past 18 months. And so we want to look at this uh, story uh, this morning. You can see the uh, Paul Tripp quote here on the board. This is one of my favorite quotes uh, around the subject of community, and I just want you, I just want to read it, and you can follow along with it on the screen. He said, "I've now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to consider myself. Or, sorry, I need to commit myself to living in. Now, listen to what he says here: intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community." Intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people, to interrupt my private conversation, and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I've realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love since... As one who has remaining sin still inside of him, it is right to say that the greatest danger in my life exists inside of me and not outside of me. Now, I don't know what you think about that statement, about that quote, but what if we lived in that kind of community? What if we lived in that kind of community? Now, we, we might say, oh, yeah, that would be great, but then there's this follow-up question, do we really mean it? Like, like, like a married couple might say, yes, I want my marriage to be great, but then do you really want to do the work that is involved in making your marriage great? What will it cost us to have that kind of a community? See, listen, all of us bring with us baggage, don't we? Uh, every one of us brings baggage into the relationships that we have with one another. We bring hurt that we've experienced. We bring fear. We bring false expectations. All of that we bring with us into this relationship. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. The transformation that God is working in you through His Spirit, He's rigged it. He's rigged it such that you and I need one another in order to be everything that God has called us to be and is making us to be. See, God's process of transforming us 
involves weaning us off of what we might call the idolatry of self. All of us love looking in at ourselves. It's just a natural part of who we are. And what God wants to do in transforming us is to wean us off of that, to turn our attention outside of ourselves to others and to Him in true worship. And that happens in community. And so we naturally gravitate, all of us, myself included, we all naturally gravitate toward that isolation. Naturally, we seek to kind of hide out whether it's a defense mechanism, whether it's pride, whatever it might be. And all the while, God wants to pull us back toward the kind of community that we just read about. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've had times in your life where you have struggled with a particular sin or or you've struggled in a particular circumstance and your natural inclination was to kind of shrink away and hide from other brothers and sisters. And what God wants to do is create in us the community, the kind of community in which we can come out of hiding and we can confess to one another the struggles that we have so that we can support one another. Look, I say this all the time. If you've come to this church looking for a perfect group of people, you're in the wrong place because all of us have sin still in us. All of us are still in the middle of our own sanctification. And part of what God is doing in us in driving that sin away is he's using one another. He's using others of us to help do that. In this, as Paul Tripp said, intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. Well, I want to show you what I think is a great illustration of this from this story about Naaman. This is one of my favorite stories uh, in all of the Scripture. How many of you uh, have never heard of Naaman the Syrian? Anybody never heard of Naaman the Syrian? You should have. I preached on it about eight years ago. You should have heard of it. You should have it memorized. (laughs) Now, this is one of my favorite stories uh, in the Scriptures, this story uh, of Naaman. Jesus Uh, He even uses this story uh, in the Gospels as a a kind of prefiguring of the the, the gift of the Gospel going to the Gentiles. And see, this is the beauty of Scripture, because this story is here, uh, in this story here, we we see this, the, the contrast between this lowly servant girl that God uses to point this Gentile sinner to a faith in the God of Israel. Uh, and in that, uh, we see the, this, uh, this offer of life to a Gentile through this lowly servant girl. And that's the diamond, right? That's, that's the, the, the bigger picture. But, but I remember several years back as I was reading this and just kind of reflecting on it, I was struck by a verse that highlighted to me just a different uh, facet of that diamond, and uh, that I think is illustrative of of something that we see in the rest of Scripture. Why is our ministry to one another in the community so important to our spiritual lives? Well, I want to show you this uh, this story this morning. Here's Naaman's dilemma. This is the dilemma that, that Naaman has. 
Uh, in verses 1 to 6, we see straight away that Naaman is a powerful individual. So Naaman, the story tells us uh, in verse 1, he is uh, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. The, 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 the author kind of just lays out the accolades of this guy Naaman. He's a, a commander. Uh, he is the commander of the, the best army around in the day. Uh, he is courageous. He is rich. He is powerful. But he's a leper. He has leprosy. It's a, it, he's the kind of guy, ladies, that you might bring home to meet the parents. You say to your parents, he's rich. And they say, yeah. He's powerful. Yeah, I like it. Uh, he's courageous, yes, but mm, he's a leper. He's a leper. And so Naaman, this powerful uh, commander, courageous military hero, leper, hears from one of the servants in his house and incidentally, there's a contrast here because this lowly servant girl believes something about the God of Israel that even the king of Israel doesn't believe as we get through the, the story. He hears from this lowly servant girl uh, that he can be healed in Israel, that there's a prophet in Israel that can bring healing to him. So he goes to his boss, a man named Ben-Hadad, who is the, the king at that time of Syria, most powerful king of the day. He takes this news to him. And when the king hears this news, to him, it's a no-brainer. It's like, well, yeah, then, then go. Then go and get healed. That would be fantastic. So he sends Naaman with what can only be described as a king's ransom. I mean, the amount of, of wealth that Naaman is sent with is, is staggering. Uh, in verse 5, it's an unfathomable amount of money, 340 kilograms of silver. Imagine hauling that around. 340 kilograms of silver, probably equivalent to about 3,000 years of wages for the common worker. 68 kilograms of gold. Well, I think I'm a little over 68 kilograms. It'll be like taking a statue of me of gold. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? It's about half a billion euro in terms of the total wealth of the day. Most people in that day had one change of clothes, maybe two. And he takes 10 changes of clothes with him. I mean, the amount of money that he takes is staggering. So he goes with a note of instruction from the king of Syria to heal Naaman of his leprosy. Again, if you look uh, at the text, verse 5, he says, Go now, the king says, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now, Joram is probably the king of Israel at this time, and Joram receives this letter from the king of Syria, and he feels like it's a provocation. And why wouldn't he? Right? Joram says, why is he sending me a letter to heal 
his servant of leprosy. I mean, I, I can't heal people. He's just trying to provoke me. How can he heal? He says that in verse 7. When the king reads the letter, he tears his clothes in despair. Because he says, how can I do this? But the little servant girl is correct. There is a prophet in Israel, which, which means there is a God in Israel. And the prophet knows that he can heal. And so we see in verses 8 to 12, Elisha hears about the distress of the king. And he goes to the king and he says, hey, no problem. Send him to me. I'll, I'll heal him. No problem. That's not, a, not an issue. And so here's Naaman, as we see in the story, beginning in verse 9. Here's Naaman. He's a man that's used to getting what he wants. He's rich. He's powerful. He doesn't stay at the travel lodge when he travels. He stays at the G Hotel, right? He's, he drives the best wagons or whatever they drove. I mean, he, he's a powerful man. He's used to getting what he wants. And he turns up in full regalia to meet God's prophet with money and a note. And it doesn't go the way he thinks it should. In verse 9, uh, Elisha, in verse 10, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. Elisha just sends a messenger uh, out to him. And he tells them, this messenger does, to go and to dip seven times in the Jordan River and he will be healed. It'd be like uh, Michael D. Higgins not even going out to the door to meet Boris Johnson when he comes for a visit, but sending the cleaner to go meet Boris at the door. Naaman feels this as an insult, that this is not what he expected. Naaman expected fanfare and bravado, befitting a man of his importance, right? This is what he was used to. In verse 11, he expected the, the waving of hands, that this, this fanfare where Elisha came out recognizing Naaman's importance and doing his bidding. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away. Are not, in verse 12, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Why didn't he do it that way? Why did he send a messenger and tell me to go dip in the disgusting Jordan River? This is what he should have done. And two times we're told that in his anger and in his rage, that he simply walks away. He won't have anything to do with it. He would rather walk away as a leper than to go in obedience because it doesn't look the way he thought it should. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. So, what's going to happen is verse 12 the end of the story? It's not. It's not. Something happens, and he has a change of heart. Look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. In verse 14, 
he does what the prophet says. He goes and he dips seven times and he is totally transformed. The, the story tells us, the text tells us, like the flesh of a child, he is born again. And this is not just a physical transformation. He is converted. If you continue on in verses 15 to 19, he becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. There is a confession. There is commitment. There is submission to a new authority in his life. He is totally transformed inside and out. But Naaman doesn't experience this healing and change until he goes in obedience to what God has told him through the prophet. And just like us, he experiences God's work at the intersection of trust and obedience, despite his expectations. And so in verse 12, when we leave him, he's standing on the ledge as a leper. But he's not cleansed until he jumps in in obedience to what God has said. And we see this time and time again in Scripture, that in order to grow in our faith, in order to grow, we have to go. And oftentimes, God calls us to go someplace that is uncomfortable, someplace that, that, that we're not familiar with. But here's the thing. God always moves when we go in obedience to what he says. Our faith is strengthened when we see God's faithfulness in response to our obedience. Now think about times in your life where you stepped out in faith. You weren't sure what was going to happen, but you felt the Lord calling you to do something and you stepped out in faith. And what happened? You saw him move. You saw him move. And your faith grew. As a result of that. So think about the Israelites in Joshua 3. They're just about to enter the promised land. They have one obstacle left. It's the Jordan River. And it's at flood, sta flood stage. It's a raging torrent. And God says to them, tell the priest to pick up the ark and to walk into the water. That's the instruction. You imagine the priest saying, well, hold on a minute, Joshua. Did you, are you sure you heard that correctly? And Joshua tells us that when the priests, when their little pinky toes hit the water at the edge of the Jordan River, God stopped the river from flowing and they went across on dry ground. Think about the original disciples in Luke chapter 5 when they're fishing and they haven't caught anything and Jesus says, well, go, let's go fish again. Go out into the deep water. Let's go fish. And they reluctantly obey and they cast their nets into the water. And what happens? They enclose a great quantity of fish. God moves in response to that. Or the nobleman's son in John chapter 4, where he comes to meet Jesus and says, heal my son. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to go with you, but you go and your son is healed. And that man has to turn in faith and he has to walk that distance back to his home, trusting. And God moves. And his son is healed. See, we always grow in our faith at the intersection of our obedience and God's faithfulness. 
Well, so here's the question. What caused Naaman's change of heart? What is it that forced him over the ledge? Where do we get the shift from verse 12 to verse 14? Someone intervened. Look at verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. He told you how you could be healed, for goodness sake. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? That's so simple, Naaman. Why won't you do it? It's so simple. Someone in Naaman's sphere of influence stuck his neck out to show him something that he didn't see because of his pride. And that little nudge was all he needed to experience the change that God was after. So again, to grow, we have to go in obedience to what God has said. But sometimes, in order to go, we need a push. We we need a shove. We need someone to come alongside of us and just give us a little, little tap to get us on our way. Let me tell you something about you, and this is true of me too. You can be your own worst enemy. Now, some of you probably know that. You can be your own worst enemy. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And more times than not, if left to our own devices, we are going to convince ourselves that our plan, that our decision, that our way of seeing the world is the right way. How many times have you sat around your family or maybe your extended family and said, man, you know what? If they would just come to me, I could fix all of their problems. I know what they need to do, and I could fix it. If they would just, I could, we get a table, and I just sit at the table, and they just come one at a time, and I could just help all of them because I know what the best thing is. You know, I hear people say a, a lot, and I said it myself, I'm just following my heart, right? But be careful because while the heart is new eschatologically in Christ, it's also being made new right now and there is still sin in our hearts and so we need people in our lives who will tell us the truth in love because we are easily deceived Naaman would have followed his heart back to Syria still a leper it would have cost him everything so part of the process of spiritual growth for us involves us being the kinds of people who love one another enough to interfere. And it involves having those kinds of people in our lives, people who will step in and help us to see what we cannot see. See, because we are not good oftentimes it's seeing our blind spots. Again, God's rigged it. 
We need one another. We need one another. The kind of community in which this happens is one in which we realize that we are all in the middle of our own transformation. God is working in all of us. None of us have arrived where God wants us to be. We need one another. I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13, where the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. And to combat that, to combat this natural pull, this natural pull that we experience from belief into unbelief, he says this, he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another. Now it's risky, isn't it? To let people get so close that they can, in love, tell me that I'm wrong or that I'm acting foolishly. It is. It's risky. But listen, you won't grow apart from those kinds of people because if left to ourselves, if left to ourselves, we will always try to convince ourselves that we are right, even if we're dead wrong. Sin is that deceptive. It, it, it sucks us in, it chews us up, and then it spits us out. And just like Naaman, we need people around us who, with humility and love, will tip us over the ledge to obey when we don't really want to. I think of Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's better to be wounded by your friend and brother and sister than it is to be kissed by your enemy. It's more profitable for you and I to surround ourselves with friends that love us and will wound us in love, that will hurt our pride, than it is for us to surround ourselves with people who will just reinforce the lies that we are telling ourselves. The author of the proverb calls those people enemies. So in order to go, or in order to grow, we've got to go. Because we grow at that point where our obedience meets God's faithfulness, where we take the plunge over the edge into the unknown. But sometimes, as we see here in the story, in order to go, we need help. We need someone to come alongside of us and give us a little push. Give us a little push. We need people who will push us to obey when we don't want to obey. A friend, a brother, a sister who in love will help us see where we might have been deceived. And so the question is, do you have people in your life like that? Do you have someone in your life who can say to you what no one else can say? 
and to whom you will listen? Is there someone in your life that you trust enough to expose yourself with the understanding that God wants to use them to grow your spiritual life? Is there someone in your life on the other side that you love enough to share in love and and with tact those things that they cannot see in their own life? See, this is where growth happens. I'm convinced that God doesn't want us to just float around on the surface with one another. There's no growth in that. There's nothing beneficial in that. No, this is where growth happens. It happens as we are willing to interfere in love with one another and say, hey, I don't know about that. Maybe you need to think about that. Maybe that's not the best thing. Remembering that all of us are still in the middle of our own sanctification. God wants us to get into one another's lives. To be a blessing and a tool that he uses to grow and to change us. Just remind you of those four things that Paul Tripp mentioned. Intentionally intrusive. Christ-centered. Grace-driven, redemptive community. And our prayer is that this would be a place where we live that out. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the way that you use people in our lives to minister to us. Uh, as your instruments, Father, through whom you work to lead us into obedience. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to become that kind of community, that kind of place, where in love and in humility we seek to encourage one another in obedience. Father, I pray that you would use us that you would help us in that. We need your help, Father, because we, we don't want to forget individually that we are still in need of your work in our lives. But Father, we know that when we understand that, that it enables us to go to brothers and sisters in humility and love. And so we pray that you would help us to encourage one another to live faithfully, to act in obedience, and to trust you with our lives. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.